to Ewing Tuesday night, late Tuesday night. They'll be here for about two or three days, uh, and then they're heading out to Kenya. So they, they head out to Kenya next Friday. So they filmed this a couple days ago. They're heading out, and you heard them say, we still don't have a house. We don't know where we're going to live. Um, so uh, that's exciting, isn't it? How many of you would like to have that? Yeah, so anyway. Um, we are going to have a prayer meeting for the Simpsons uh, at Will and Carrie's house. Now, Will and Carrie's house, conveniently, is where Jeff and Linda were living uh, when they were living around here. Will and Carrie are uh, living there this year while they're in Kenya. So uh, if you can join us Thursday evening for a time of prayer for the Simpsons, it's going to be relatively brief because they need to get up early and, and fly out to Kenya the next day. Uh, but it'll be from 7 to 8 p.m. this Thursday evening. Okay, so I'll send out an email um, so that you are reminded of that. Uh, but consider coming to that time of prayer for Jeff, Linda, and Faith, and Christian, and for Judy. Don't forget to pray for Judy, Linda's mom. It's harder sometimes to stay than it is to go, and so uh, keep her in your prayers. Did you ever get that pray for Judy postcard we asked you to put together? No, we need that postcard to put on our fridges. Okay, anyway, it is good to see females uh, here today. Uh, you guys were all at the retreat, and it was a very manly service last week. We had a good time. We we belched and we did all sorts of things that men like to do. I'm just teasing. I, I didn't belch. Jay did. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so we're great. You're back. Um, we're glad you're back. And we heard such good reports. And uh, we'll continue to pray that God does the work in your hearts. Uh, just a report for you. Yesterday at Community Fest, uh, we set up a couple tables about Calvary Chapel, about Light the Night. Uh, and at our tables um, for Calvary Chapel in particular, we have Bibles available, free Bibles. If you'd like a Bible, take one. 38 people uh, just said, may I please have one of those Bibles and took a Bible. So let's be praying for those people that they read them. The uh, Bible isn't very really useful if you're not reading it. Uh, and that God cuts through and, and enters into their heart. Uh, we would pray that. We also want to be praying for Diane Sargent and Craig. Uh, Diane's father, who's in his upper 80s, is in ICU up in a, a hospital in Connecticut. And they drove up there to see them, uh, him, I should say. Uh, he has internal bleeding and they can't figure out where it's coming from. I'm losing pints at a time. So uh, let's pray for Diane. As uh, One of her prayer requests is, um, how do I communicate the gospel to my dad um, as he's lying there? And so uh, we tried to coach her a little bit, but uh, we're praying for her. And I said, trust the Lord and tell him what he's done in your life. Um, so let's pray for Diane and, and all these other things. Father, we, uh, we begin with sort of a heavy heart. Uh, for Diane and, uh, and for Craig as they have to make their way up to Connecticut and, uh, Lord, to, to see her dad, Lord, in just a, a frail state, Lord, uh, really in, uh, in a place of dying. And, Lord, the pain that that causes emotionally to a heart. Father, I pray that you would strengthen Diane uh, and Craig as they, they go to seek Lord, to be with him and to love him. And, and Father, I pray that you would fill Diane, Lord, supernaturally with your spirit to speak words of truth, Lord, into her father's life. Father, your word tells us, Lord, that when we're paraded uh, before kings and high officials, not to worry about what we'll say because your spirit will give us the words. And similarly, Lord, now I pray that you would fill Diane with the words to speak into her father's life, and you would open up his heart to respond and receive. Father, we ask for you to give the doctors wisdom that they might find where this bleeding is coming from, and they might be able to, uh, to stop it, Lord. Father, we thank you for uh, the 60 or so women that were able to get away last weekend. 
Lord, for the blessing of your Spirit speaking to their hearts, each of them in a different place in their walk with you, and yet you so graciously and so powerfully being able to, to speak right into their lives. Father, I pray that the good work that you started, that you would bring about to completion in each one of them, Lord, that you would bless them. And Father, we thank you for the great blessing that the women of Calvary are uh, to this whole body, to the men, to the other women, to the children, to our community. So Father, refresh them, Lord, uh, even just with the remembrance of the good things you did last weekend. Father, we pray for Jeff and Linda and Christian and Faith as you bring them back to Jersey safely, we ask. Father, we pray your blessing on our time of prayer. Lord, that your spirit would anoint the time that you would move, that you'd encourage Jeff and Linda with the support they're receiving from their uh, friends and church family. Lord, we do pray that you would provide for all their needs and that you would give them a calling. Uh, they, they've received the calling, but that you would give them just a very clear direction as to what you would have them to do over this next year. Father, we love you. We look forward to hearing from you through your word. We ask you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed uh, Roger Weiss has his dog Layla with us. Roger is blind. I don't know if you're aware of that. Uh, one of the things that uh, Roger asked me to ask you, when his dog Layla is working, so it's a cute dog. Have you seen that dog? I don't know where he is right now, but... Um, but if the dog's harness is on, that, that kind of big handle thing, don't pet the dog, all right, because he's working. Um, you can pet Roger, but don't pet the dog. <laughs> all right. All right, good friends, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Oh, excuse me, we are in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. <laughs> they look alike. It's early in the morning here. Um, so in 1 Chronicles, man, 1 Chronicles chapter 13 we are uh, looking at David. We're, we're going to look at a very interesting story this evening, um, some, uh, this morning, some aspects of the story that are a little bit sort of like, wow, that's harsh. What's going on? Uh, I don't get it. And so we'll, we'll take some time and we'll consider that today and try and answer some questions perhaps. But be reminded of the context. Chapter 10, King Saul, the first king of Israel, dies. He had been the king for 40 years. And David had been his key enemy, so his death sort of opens the door for David to become king, first of the tribe of Judah, uh, one of the 12 tribes, and then of all of the house of Israel. So that's chapter uh, 11, we read about that, where David becomes the king. Then in chapter 12, we sort of had this flashback of sorts, uh, where we try to get an idea of, well, who are all these people that have gathered around David? Where did they come from? Well, many of them came to David when David was in exile, and they, they went and they found him, and they said, look, we know you're an enemy of the state, but we want to put our lot with you. We trust you. And 600 mighty men gathered around him, and then increasingly more and more. We read about that in chapter 12. Now as we come to chapter 13, we're back in the present. So we're not looking at David's past when he was an outlaw. We're back in the present of things. And David is the king. Uh, he is firmly established as such, as the king of all of Israel. He has uh, conquered the city of Jebus, that city that the Israelites just couldn't get free from the Philistines all those years. He's conquered that. He's renamed it Jerusalem. He's made it the center of uh, the nation of Israel, the capital of the nation of Israel. And his throne now is firmly established. He's the king. And the place where he's going to rule from is uh, permanently situated, the nation, or excuse me, the city of Jerusalem. And now he's ready to start ruling his presidential administration, if you want to call that. He's going to kind of get down the business. 
And it's interesting as we move to chapter 13, and I'm not sure if you read ahead or not, even though I told you to, but if you did, you know that he's going to do something involving the Ark of the Covenant. And it's interesting that his first order of business that he tackles is related to worship. Because one of the things many of us, most of us perhaps in the room know, is that David was a man who loved to worship. David was a man who the scripture says was a man after God's own heart. And as a man after God's own heart, he longed for God to have his rightful place in the nation of Israel. Remember, the the name, the word Israel means governed by God. But sadly, over the last 40 years or so, Israel wasn't really governed by God. They had strayed in their relationship with God pretty far away, as a matter of fact. God had been neglected. God had been ignored. And we have a glaring example of that neglect and that ignorance, if you will. We have a glaring example of that in chapter 13 today. So our passage is going to begin, the first four verses of chapter 13, which we'll read in a moment, it's going to begin by talking about the Ark of God. And so I wanted to take some time just to give you a little background of the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God uh, to help us understand what's going on in our particular passage. Now, as I said, it's called the Ark of God. Sometimes you'll see in the scripture it's called the Ark of the Tablets. Sometimes it's called the Ark of the Covenant. Sometimes it's just called the Ark. This is the famous Ark from Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that you're familiar with. And you have a rough picture of it here. Uh, Inside of this box here, now this picture is what scholars suggest it may look like. We don't necessarily know. We don't have the Ark with us necessarily. It it may be somewhere. Uh, Interesting story that we uh, came across when we went to the nation of Israel is that the the people of Israel, the excavators, uh, the, the archaeologists or whatever, think they found it. And they began to dig into this particular area, and it almost set off World War III with the Muslims uh, in that area under the Temple Mount area. It's pretty interesting. You'll learn about it when you go with us to Israel. But anyway, inside of the, this rectangular box were three things. One was Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod symbolized that God led them out of Egypt. You remember that was sort of what Aaron was given to kind of lead Moses and Aaron. Uh, also a jar of manna. Now, the jar of manna would demonstrate how God provided for them through their wandering in the wilderness. And then finally, you have the Ten Commandments or the tablets, uh, and that was indicative of God's desire to bless the people as they followed him, and they kept his commandments. And so, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was one of the few items that was found in the most holy place of uh, the tabernacle or the temple, and it represented God's presence. You'll notice on our picture here, on top of the ark, well, whatever, on top of the ark, you see those little angels that are up there. Uh, They're cherubim, they're gold-plated angels, their wings kind of pointed, and just below those wings is where the mercy seat was located. And the mercy seat was the place that the high priest would go, and he would pour the blood of the Passover lamb, and the blood would fill the bowl, and it would spill out over the side. Great symbolism in that because the blood of the Lamb would cover over the commandments, the Ten Commandments. And what did Moses do when he came down off the mountain with the commandments? First thing he did? Threw them down on the ground and he broke them. God himself carved into them and he breaks them on the ground because the people were worshiping a golden calf. And so there's great symbolism. The broken commandments are covered with the blood of the Lamb. That's a New Testament picture, isn't it? How Jesus covers over all of our sins. And so uh, you have this mercy seat here. Exodus chapter 25 says this, by the way, so Moses didn't just make this idea up, I have an idea, I'll make a box and I'll put angels on top, you know, 
uh, this comes right from God. It says, Exodus 25, it says, The cherubim shall, be spread at, should, shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. So this ark of the covenant is going to represent the presence of God. Now when the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness, remember they came out of slavery in Egypt and they wandered through the wilderness for about 40 years. When they were wandering through that wilderness, they would bring the ark with them. And when God said stop, they would set up the tent, put the ark in there, and they would stop. And when God said it was time to move on, they would move on. So they wandered with that ark, as I said, for 40 years. It wasn't until they came into the land, the promised land, under the leadership of Joshua, that the ark found a home. And it found a home for about 300 years in the town of Shiloh. Now we have a map of Shiloh there. And as you can see, Shiloh is the balloon up top here. I put an arrow at the bottom. That's where Bethlehem is. And Bethlehem is only five or six miles away from Jerusalem. And so we've been talking about the location of Jerusalem in past weeks. So you have an idea roughly of where Shiloh is. That's not too far from where the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan River when they came into the land. Remember the Battle of Jericho and other things there? Shiloh is located right in that particular area. And this is where the ark would settle for about 300 years. It sort of became the center of worship for the children of Israel, much like Jerusalem would develop into that as years would go by. Now, we know that God can't be limited to a particular place, but we, we know that God can choose a place in which his presence would dwell in a special way. And the tent of meeting and the Ark of the Covenant became that particular place. Well, that's the context of where we are, having to do with the Ark of God and the significance of the Ark of God in the nation of Israel. Now, if you would turn to First Chronicles 13, let's read verses 1 through 4. It said, Now David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and the Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. And then let us bring the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So again, the context that we have here, David is securely entrenched as the king of Israel. Jerusalem is established and safe. It is now going to be the place of the capital where David will oversee his administration. And his first decision, as we said, is to bring the Ark of this Covenant to Jerusalem. And because his purpose is to establish the people's relationship with God, as the center of everything that this nation is going to do. So David consults with his commanders, and he says, what do you say? Do you think it's a good idea? Should we do it? And their response is, provided for us in 1 Chronicles 13.4, they said all the assembly of these leaders and priests agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. And so now they just have to go. Now, from my introduction, you would think that the ark was in Shiloh. Although the ark wasn't in Shiloh, the ark had been in Shiloh for about 300 years. But we learn as we read in the book of 1 Samuel that the children of Israel began to bring the ark into their battles. You see, the ark 
symbolized God's presence, correct? Yes. And the ark, uh, God chose the ark as sort of the special place in which his presence would dwell. We understand that. But God did not intend for the ark to become some, some sort of good luck charm for the nation of Israel. But that's how they began to look at the ark. So when they would go off into battle, they would call up Shiloh and they would say, we need the ark because we're going to go fight. And if we don't bring God into this battle in the form of this ark, then we will lose our particular battle. Would you flip back two or three books to the book of 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel chapter 4, actually. Many of the accounts that we have in 1 Chronicles are also found for us in 1 and 2 Samuel. And in some cases, we're given a little more information that we're not provided in one of the other books. And that's this particular case. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, we read of an early battle between the children of Israel and the neighboring Philistine people. Now, that was long before Saul became the king of Israel. Uh, and the nation of Israel goes into battle against the Philistines. And I'll read it relatively quickly, starting in the second portion of verse 1. It says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Ephek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And I think you need to pause there. People throw out their answers, and then they bring a conclusion, it seems. It says, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of the enemies. It seems somebody said, it's because we don't have the ark here. You know, we don't have our good luck charm with us or something. So the people sent to Shiloh, they brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Imagine how loud. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe unto us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe unto us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now, it's interesting because that was 400 or so years earlier. And the neighboring nations know about the might that God demonstrated in the nation of uh, Egypt there. Verse 9, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, the priest Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now to our point, we see that the ark of God, look at verse 11, that the ark of God was captured. God had been defeated in this battle, did, hadn't he? No, God was not defeated. Look at verse, uh, verse 10. Don't you like how I set you up to agree with me and then I tell you you're wrong? You know, um, God, did, God was not defeated. Look at verse 10. It says that the people of Israel were defeated. It was Israel that trusted not in God, but in some sort of good luck charm. You know those old movies? I know there's a lot of movies now about vampires and stuff like that and books and stuff. But you remember those old movies about vampires? I haven't seen the new one, so I don't know. Maybe they do it too. But, you know, the vampire would come in and the, the guy would run for his crucifix, you know, and he would hold out that crucifix thing there and, 
and the vampire couldn't do anything or whatever. That's the same idea. I, I honestly don't think it works that way. The, the passage of Scripture that I was looking at or thinking about is in Acts where the sons of Sceva, they said, you know, we rebuke you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And they say, well, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but who are you? And the demons, you know, beat up these seven sons and send them running away naked or whatever. I think it's the same idea. You know, there's sort of this good luck charm of the crucifix or of the name of Jesus or something, but having no relationship with Jesus or the good luck charm of this box that we're going to have some magical victory because of it. And so it's not Israel or God that's defeated, it's Israel. And quite honestly, I don't think God is interested in being anyone's good luck charm. And 34,000 people sadly die that day. And maybe even worse, the enemies of God are left believing that their God, and we learn his name is Dagon, was mightier than Jehovah, and that Dagon gave these people victory. Now, if you read chapter 5 of 1 Samuel, and I'd recommend you do, it's somewhat of a humorous story. Chapter 5 of 1 Samuel, the, uh, the Philistines take now this ark, and it's a trophy. It's spoils of war, but it's really a trophy of their victory, and they put that in their temple or in their house of Dagon there in the city of Ashdod, uh, right across from their own god, their idol Dagon. And the passage is humorous because it says when they come in the next day, that Dagon had fallen down on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. So they prop up Dagon again. They come back the next day, and now his arms and his legs you know, and his head have all been cut off, and he's sort of lying there, and heads are all over the place, or whatever it may be, and they're figuring, this isn't good. You know, something is going on here. But maybe even more significantly than their God having his heads cut off, head cut off and falling down on his face, is the people of Ashdod began to notice that ever since the ark came into town, that the people began to suffer from what the King James calls emrods. And we know the translation people su suggest is hemorrhoids. And so the people begin to suffer from these hemorrhoids, and wisely, the Philistine people of Ashdod, they said, you know what, just get this thing out of here. Bad has been coming ever since this thing got in here, and they get it out. And so they send it to a neighboring sister Philistine city of Gath. And 1 Samuel 5.8 says, So they, they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of God? And they answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. Apparently they didn't like the people of Gath very much, so they wanted them to suffer from the hemorrhoids. And immediately the people of Gath began to experience the same tumors. So they send it to another neighboring Philistine city. They send it to the city of Ekron. And I love Ekron's response. Their response is, uh, No, thank you. We don't want your box. Uh, you can keep it. So it seems that there were five Philistine cities, and the representatives of each of these cities, the lords of these cities, they gather, and they make a decision to send the ark back to Israel. That's recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 6. If you can flip over there and read that with me. It says, Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners, and they said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send to it, it to its place. And they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, well, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered him, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the, I know, 
according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give the glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will then lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. I am sure that that's exactly what God wanted, a gold-plated replica of a hemorrhoid. Um, <laughs> that will appease him. Can keep going on, verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Again, so interesting that these Philistines are aware of an event that happened in the history of Israel 400 years earlier, and maybe even more interesting, that they are learning the lessons of those times. They're not going to make the same mistake that the pharaohs made. Verse 7, Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows in which there has never come a yoke and a yoke and yoke to the cow, the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by a coincidence. So their, their objective is, their solution, is essentially just create a test. They're going to build a cart, they're going to pull it by some cows, and they're going to see where it goes. If it goes directly to Beth Shemesh, and Beth Shemesh is a city of Israel, if it goes directly to that city and doesn't kind of wander around uh, in circles, but goes directly there like it's on purpose, um, then we know that God was in this. If it just sort of wanders all over the place aimlessly, then we'll know that it was just one big coincidence. Well, if you read the rest of 1 Samuel 6, you'll see that the cows did go directly back to Beth Shemesh. And you can imagine the surprise, the passage tells us, of the, the farmers that are outside of this Judean city. They're out there, they're just farming, and all of a sudden they see these cows coming up, pulling a cart, and as it gets closer and closer, they, they see that the Ark of the Covenant is there on the back of the cart. Well, the passage tells us they immediately call the priests uh, of Israel, the Levites of Israel, to come. They break up the wood of the cart. Uh, they use the wood to make a fire, and they offer the cows to the Lord, 1 Samuel 6.14. And so the ark has found a home in Beth Shemesh. I think we have a picture of Beth Shemesh here, maybe. So Beth Shemesh is kind of in the middle of the land. You can see where Shiloh is. Remember a moment ago we looked at that. So it's a long way from where it was when it settled for 300 years. Uh, all down the bottom, this whole area here, these are many of those Philistine cities that I mentioned, Ekron and Gath and Ashdod and so on. So Beth Shemesh is a relatively close neighboring city, uh, and, and everything is great until 1 Samuel 6.19. And in 1 Samuel 6.19, it tells us that the people of Beth Shemesh got curious and began to look inside of the ark. which is Yeah, I know. Somebody gave me a huh over there. Uh, that's a big mistake, and they were struck down dead. The NIV and the English Standard Version says that 70 people of Beth Shemesh were struck down for this. If you read the King James Version, that version comes from a different manuscript, ancient manuscript, and the number is 50,070. And so we don't actually know which one of those is correct necessarily, uh, but it's one of those minor differences, 98.5% of the scripture agrees, but it's on, sometimes the manuscripts are numbers and stuff like that. There are discrepancies. Nothing that's going to change your life or anything, but this is one of those. But a number of people die. Either way, the people of Beth Shemesh conclude 
that, you know, this is not the proper place for this ark. 1 Samuel 6, 19 and 20 says, So the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? And the conclusion of the people of, uh, of Beth Shemesh is to send it away. So they call up Kiriath-Jerim, which is another neighboring city. I think we have that one there. Do we have that? So you can see where Beth Shemesh is and Kiriath-Jerim is uh, not too far away from it. It had a priestly presence in Kiriath-Jerim. And so they said, you know what? You guys take it. You're the spiritual leaders. You take it. And that's where it would remain for about 70 years. So we're, we're five or 600 years from Moses and stuff here. Uh, and it would reside in this place called Kiriath-Jerim for about 700 years. Verse Chapter 7, verse 1. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came. They took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to the house of Abinadab. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark. Now that brings us back to our passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And it explains for us why David is going to lead an expedition to Kiriath-Jerim. Because that's where the ark is. It sat there for 70 years. Saul's reign had come and gone. And another 10 years or so had come uh, where David was sort of in charge, first of Judah and now Israel. So we're looking at a period of about 70 years that have gone by, and it has been neglected. And David doesn't want it to be neglected any longer. So we look at verse 5 of First Chronicles chapter 13. It says, So David assembled all of Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Labo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carry the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were rejoicing before God with all of their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. So David gathered all the people, and what we mean by that is the leaders of all of the people. He gathers them up from the Nile of Egypt, it says, which was the southernmost tip of Israel's border, to Labo Hamath, which was at the time the northernmost tip of their border. And he gathers them at the city of Kiriath-Jerim. And there's going to be a processional for the ark to Jerusalem. This is going to be awesome. This is great. Uh, you can see they're going to dance with all of their might. God's going to be given his rightful place in society. The ark is going to be brought up. It's going to be placed front and center in David's administration. The passage says that they put the ark on a cart, they begin to transport it, and the people begin to rejoice. And they, as it says, they rejoice in verse 8 with all of their might. This is awesome. Yay God. Yay Israel. Unfortunately, I see Erica, she knows the story probably. No, this is not going to be awesome. As you can keep reading in verse 9, we'll see that there's a problem here. It says, now when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And the place to this day is called Perez Uzzah. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark home into the city of David? But he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. 
And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. You know, you, you look at the circumstance, and let's say you went, I'm just going to run to the store for something, and I'll come back later. And all of a sudden, you're like, how did everything change? You know, it was a great day. Everything was going great. What happened? Well, everything was going great. And so it forces us to ask the question, how could something so tragic like this occur on such a great day? Well, the first thing is, this is no accident. This isn't some terrible accident, some mistake that things happen, you know, good things happen to bad people or bad things happen to good people, whatever the book is uh, that is out there. But this was, as it says in verse 10, it was the hand of God that God struck down this fellow by the name of Uzzah. And of course, if you're like me, you ask the question, but why? What did Uzzah do wrong? He was only trying to help. He was steadying the ark so that it wouldn't fall when the oxen stumbled. What could be wrong with that? That's a good thing. And I would agree. It's a very good thing, just like bringing the ark to Jerusalem to make God the center of everything is a very good thing. But there are times that you and I, we can set out to accomplish good, but do it in the wrong way. And we hear people in our culture today as we rationalize just about everything to do whatever we want to do, as long as we have a reason for it. Uh, but people will say, well, the ends justifies the means. Well, the title of our message today is that the ends do not justify the means. And in this case here, we see that even though these folks were setting out to do well, to do good, that they did it in a wrong way. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. In Numbers chapter 4, the scripture is very clear as to how the ark is to be transported. And it says in Numbers chapter 4 that the ark is not even to be touched by the priest. And so if they can't touch it, well, how are they going to move it? Well, the passage uh, in Exodus 25 tells us that. Let me read that for you. Exodus 25 says, you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two, ring, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. And the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. So we have a picture of that, I think. And you can see those little rings are on both sides of there, and you have the pretty pink pole. I'm not sure if it was a pink pole like that, but you have the pretty pole there. That, and that is what they would, how the priests would have to carry it. No mention of throwing it on an ark, so, or excuse me, a cart. So we see that not only is Uzzah, who's trying to do a good thing, wrong for touching the ark, according to the Numbers passage, but that David and the leaders of Israel are also wrong, and that they're transporting the ark upon a cart and not by its poles as they were instructed. Interesting, moving the ark on a cart was what the Philistines introduced when they sent it out of their land because of the hemorrhoid outbreak um, that was coming there. It worked, but it wasn't necessarily the way that God had desired. So why did David do this? Well, you might say because, you know, it had been 400 years, maybe he didn't know. You know, the instructions were given some 400 years ago, and, and he just wasn't aware of them. Maybe he figured, you know what, it doesn't really matter anymore. It, perhaps it mattered in the past, but not so much in our current, modern, educated society. I mean, we have carts to lift heavy things nowadays. Uh, back then, they didn't have the wheel, maybe. I don't know if they did or not. Maybe it was because he observed that it worked for the people of the world, 
And if it worked for the Philistines, man, that, that'll work for us. It's certainly a whole lot more efficient. And every one of those points is correct. The instructions were given hundreds of years ago. David's society probably was much more educated than the ones that had come before him. The method of using a car, it did seem to work for the Philistines. It got the job done. But commenting on this passage, G. Campbell Morgan, he says this. He says, if God's order is to be established, it must be done according to his way. David had done his best to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. But his best was not good enough. Interestingly, the name Uzzah, it means strength. And how many, a times, how many times we try to accomplish the work of God according to our own strength, only to find that we fail. It is a good thing that David wanted, and that was that he desired the presence of the Lord in our lives. But how often do we seek to have the presence of the Lord in our lives without maintaining the holiness of the Lord in our lives? And I'm not sure we have a full understanding of what it means to revere the holiness of God. We want God to be in our lives, yet we continue to hold on in our lives to areas of sin. We want to enjoy his presence, but maintain unholy aspects of our relationship with him. And so we do things our way. We reason, well, you know what, this is good enough. We make assumptions about what should be acceptable, and we fail to approach God according to how we have previously been instructed in his word. We do this in our personal lives, and I think we can do it corporately as a body of believers, as a church, whenever we try to accomplish the work of God according to our own ways. We want to build up a church, right? See, a lot of people come to the Lord, that's good. So we offer all sorts of gimmicks to attract the crowd. That's bad. We want people to readily receive the gospel. I just want them to receive the gospel. That's good. It's a good desire. And so we water down the message so as to not offend. That's bad. We're trying to accomplish the work of God in our own strength and in our own ways and in the process deny the holiness of who God is. When we do this, we use our own wisdom. And in many times, many times, we are working contrary to the ways of God. And God will not bless that. And sometimes his heavy hand of judgment is necessary to wake us up to that reality. So how did David find himself in this place? We know what he did wrong. He put it on a cart and so on. But how did he get here? Well, I would suggest here the answer is found in verse 1 of the passage. Chapter 13, 1, again, reading it. It said, Now David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and with every leader. Conspicuously absent from that list of the thousands and hundreds and every leader is the name the Lord. The pa all the passages leading up to this and in 1 Samuel, the, the parallel passages, it, it continually speaks of David inquired of the Lord, David inquired of the Lord, David inquired of the Lord. But we don't have mention of that here. Instead, David goes to his human counselors uh, and he seeks their wisdom in this. I suggest to you, had David inquired of the Lord, I have no doubt that God would have said maybe something like this. That's a great idea. Just be sure you follow the way in which I instructed in the books of Moses when I told them to Moses and to Aaron. Instead of seeking the advice of God, he sought the advice of people only, and it cost him. And I think there's a valuable lesson for us as believers in this passage. And that is that we are to be a people 
that are diligently seeking the leading and the guiding of the Lord for every area of our lives, every day of our lives. Sometimes I think we get into this habit, and I, I, I can say this because this is my life, is we sort of get into this, well, I sought the Lord. I sought him like a month ago. I've got to seek him again? Come on now, let's get through this here. It would be certainly much more efficient if I can now go on my own. But we need to be people that are seeking him every day, for every area of our lives. How is the Lord directing me? Lord, how are you leading me? How are you directing me? Would you have me to move forward or would you have me to stay? Lord, I know in the past you told me to do such and such, but how are you leading me now? Lord, should I move forward or should I wait? And as we we have that passage where uh, Eli says to Samuel, next time the Lord speaks to you, you tell him, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And I believe that that's what God would have us to do, that we'd be a people that are seeking out his wisdom and his guidance and his direction. There's great wisdom in seeking the Lord daily, and when we respond according to his leading, we keep ourselves from grave mistakes and great pain, as we see in this particular passage here. Well, as we move on, 14 and 15. When we get to 15, David will figure all this out and and we'll see that the ark does get to Jerusalem. So don't be alarmed. It'll make it there. But it won't at the end of this passage. And so we sort of leave kind of in a heavy place as it relates to Uzzah and the others. But also, would you take notice that the the ark makes its way to a guy named Obed-Edom's house? Uh, That's a fun name. Uh, And it, it makes its way to his house. And it says that while it's there that he is blessed greatly. You know why? Because he's not running up and looking inside. He's not running up and touching it. He's not putting it on a cart and driving it around the city. And so the very thing that brought a judgment to some brought great blessing to another. And the presence of God in our lives, as it's intermingled with the holiness of God and who he is, brings great blessing to who we are. We need to have a greater understanding of that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, We live in, Lord, Father, we live in a culture that is, in, in some aspects, uh, very uh, disrespectful of who you are, totally un, uninterested in your holiness. And, and if uh, it is interested in any way, so much rationalization and so much watering down of uh, your truth. And then at the same time, Lord, uh, we live in a culture, as many of us in this room as believers, in which there's just such a a great familiarity and comfortability with who you are, and we could forget, I think, the holiness of God. And Lord, as we look at this passage here, Lord, we are reminded that you have spoken in your word, and you have decreed. And as my brother Desmond shared with me earlier, Lord, that the people of God perish for a lack of knowledge. And so, Lord, the word has been prevented for us and there's presented to us and there's no reason that we should not be aware of it, Lord. And at the same time, Lord, we never want to water down your holiness. You are altogether different and separate from us and yet you've come down and you've made yourself accessible through the person of your son. Lord, there is just a healthy balance there and we pray that you would cause us to be a people that understand that. And Father, I I know that as we do, that you would bless us in great ways with your presence. Speak to our hearts, Lord, even as we continue to sing to you in worship, we ask.
We have seen and heard. We have seen and heard wonders of your hand. How you loved us first, carried us to the promise. And who is like you? Who is like you, God? None that we know. Who is like you, God? None that we know. We are overwhelmed. We are Oh, oh, oh. 